to Luke and the book of Acts. And we said that volume one and volume two were both about the work of, the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Volume one, the gospel according to Luke, was about what Jesus did while he was on earth. And that volume two, the book of Acts, is about Jesus' ministry from heaven. Luke, what Jesus does on earth. Acts, what Jesus does from heaven. If that's the case, then it only makes sense that Dr. Luke then begins Acts by telling us the account of how Jesus left earth to go up to heaven. What you essentially have here, the passage we're looking at that you just heard read to you, is essentially Jesus giving his final farewell, his goodbye to his disciples. Now, if you think about a goodbye, a goodbye is always hard. I hate goodbyes and never been good at goodbyes. Goodbyes for all of us are really hard. I can think back to being a kid and dropping off relatives at the airport, some who were going back to India that we would never see again. And there was this common ingredient to those goodbyes, which was at the terminal you're waiting, a large crowd of people, everyone sobbing together, tears, sorrowful goodbye. I remember where cousins were going off to college for the first time. We had grown up together, and the scene is always the same in my head. We're standing in the driveway, this loaded station wagon drives off, and the same ingredient, tears and sorrow and goodbye. I remember dropping my younger sister Asha off to college for the first time. We had grown up in suburb Long Island our whole lives, and now I was bringing her into some rough parts of Philadelphia for the first time. And I remember thinking to myself, we should just homeschool her through college, right? I mean, how hard can physical therapy be? We can teach her that at home, right? I can't even imagine the thought. I've already scheduled a counseling appointment for when I have to send my kids off to college, right? I already told Shainu, you should just know for six months I will be out of commission. My plan is to actually buy the house attached to the, my house next door, be like everybody loves Raymond, and just live next to the kids all my life because that's the way goodbyes are, right? In Acts 20, later when we get there, we'll actually see there's this scene where the Apostle Paul has planted a church in the city of Ephesus. Three and a half years, he ministers with them, labors with them, loves them, and when it's time for him to move on to what God had called him to do, he calls together the elders, and the scene is everything you'd expect. They fall essentially on his neck, they fall on each other, they embrace one another, they weep because they heard Paul say, you will not see my face again. That's the way goodbyes work. Which then helps you see why it's actually quite odd to hear how the disciples respond when Jesus says his goodbye. When Jesus departs, it'll strike you a bit to hear, this is what happens then. Listen to how Luke records it at the end of volume 1. Luke 24, verses 50 and following. It says this, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. There's a part of you that goes, wait a minute. Paul planted a church for three years, and when he was saying his goodbye, they fell on his neck, they wept together because they would not see his face again. Jesus Christ, who had died for the forgiveness of these disciples' sins, their Lord, their master, their best friend that they had spent night and day with for three years, gone everywhere, seen him do everything, seen what he said, seen him die, seen him come back. This Jesus was departing from them 
for them to never again see him on this earth. And Luke says, they worshiped God, they blessed God, and they had great joy in their hearts. So that makes you go, what gives? What is that? What exactly is happening here? You see, what we have here is what Christians call the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Jesus Christ. And the early Christians knew that the ascension was a really big deal. That it was really important. For example, they wrote the ascension into the creeds. Just a little while ago, we said together the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was this summary of the Christian faith written to combat the false teachings of that day. And included in it were some of the essentials that you have to know about Jesus. If you're going to know anything about Jesus, you have to know this stuff. And if you think about it, there's all kinds of things about Jesus that's not included in the creed. For example, there's no mention of his miracles, not a word about his teachings, nothing actually about his life or ministry or deeds. None of it's included. It's sort of the big mountain moments of Jesus' life and ministry. And so what's included? If you think back to what we said together, we confess together, we believe in Jesus. And then we said, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. That's a big deal. In fact, so big, we have a holiday attached to it called Christmas, where we remember and celebrate that Jesus became man, took on flesh, came down from heaven. We go on in the creed to say what? Who was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and died and was buried. That's a big deal. So much so that we have a holiday for it. We call it Good Friday. And we forever remember and celebrate that this Jesus who did come down died on the cross just as the scriptures had said he would. Then the creed goes on to say, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. That's a big deal. So much so that we have a holiday for it. We call it Easter. And we forever remember that the Jesus who came down and died rose again on the third day. In fact, that section about Jesus ends by saying, and he will come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Because that's a big deal. This Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to do what kings do. He's going to judge the world. But tucked into that creed is a sentence, a sentence you might otherwise skip by, a sentence that after the resurrection says, And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. They included that because that's a big deal. Because the creed was saying, the early Christians were saying, if we're going to tell you some of the absolute essential things about Jesus that you need to know, they're going to say, you need to know what happened at Christmas. You need to know what happened at Good Friday. You need to know what happened at Easter. You need to know what will happen when he returns. And tucked in the middle, you need to know the ascension. You need to know that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. The early Christians thought that was really important. Dr. Luke thought it was so important that he wrote about it twice. He includes it at the end of volume one, the passage I just said for you from Luke, and at the beginning of volume two in Acts. So you ask, what did the early Christians understand about the ascension? What did Dr. Luke understand about the ascension that perhaps we in our day miss? 
because we hardly pay attention to it at all. In fact, if we're honest, the ascending of Jesus into heaven sounds a bit odd to us. Let me hear you, let you hear again Acts 1. I'm just going to read verses 9 through 11. Just hear it with your ears. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. If you're honest, it sounds odd. It sounds like a scene out of Star Trek, like Jesus is now beamed up to heaven by the Father. You can almost picture him in your mind's eye like Mary Poppins floating through the sky, up and up and up he goes. Surely some of you sitting here would ask, and surely some of your friends would ask, and neighbors would ask, and classmates would ask, and coworkers would ask. You don't really believe that, do you? I mean, last week we had spent all this time talking about the historicity of Luke and how reliable it is. And he starts his whole account with, and Jesus floated up. You don't really believe that, do you? Would be some of the question. And then, even if you do believe that, isn't there a part of you that goes, the ascension feels like a really bad strategy in the big picture of things, right? Because speaking of people who don't believe, wouldn't this conversation about evangelism be so much easier if he were still here? Wouldn't every conversation be so much easier if you go, oh, you don't believe in Jesus? Well, here he is, right? Here he is. You can believe. How many conversations have you had where people go, if there really was a God, he needed to show himself. And how easy would you be to say, and here comes Jesus, so you can actually believe. Or you even think of what Jesus just finished saying. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, right? You're going to take this message about me to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus essentially goes, so good luck with that. And then he leaves. And doesn't that feel like what kind of strategy is that? You got this impossible task and now you lost the best player on your team. How much more effective would it be if he were still here and could pack out stadiums and, and you could just have him plant a church and video it out to the whole world? He left. He left. And, and here, somehow, though they may have been initially stunned and perhaps even sad, somehow the disciples left, get this, with joy in their hearts and praise on their tongues. So what is it? What is it that they and the early Christians understood about the ascension that we would do well to understand as well? As I've read this week, I think there's lots of things that can be said. For the sake of time, two things. Here's what it means. The ascension means that we can have confidence to go before God in heaven and confidence to go to the nations on earth. For this morning, I want you to consider the ascension means that we can have confidence to go before God in heaven and confidence to go to the nations on earth. Let's consider that together. The first one. The ascension means that we can have confidence to go before God in heaven. I wonder in your mind's eye how you picture Acts 1. I wonder in your mind's eye, do you see Jesus floating up into the clouds? And then what? Don't you wonder, does, does he break the earth's atmosphere? 
Does he go up and how far up? Does he go into outer space and up and up and up and up he goes? And, and it almost makes you go, where did Jesus go when he disappeared? Where did he go? I, I heard this one astronaut, the first astronaut to ever break space. This guy named Yuri Garrigan was the Soviet astronaut. He said that he got into space and this famous quote is attributed to him. His quote was, I looked and looked and looked but I didn't see God. First man to break into space, and his famous quote that he left back to the earth was, I looked and looked and looked, but didn't see God. Now, that's a clever quote, and it's been quoted many times, but the Bible would at least say it's based on a false premise. Because the Bible doesn't understand earth and heaven like this three-story building, where, where you've got heaven at the top floor, and the middle ground is earth, and the basement is hell. And so if you go far enough up, you'll get to heaven. If you go far enough down, you'll get to hell. The, the Bible doesn't see it that way at all. In fact, one preacher said it like this. It's almost what Yuri Garrigan is saying is almost like if Hamlet said, I looked to every part of the set, every part of the stage. I searched and searched and searched and couldn't find Shakespeare. And you'd go, that's right. Because Shakespeare isn't in some uttermost part of the set. He's not hidden in some corner of the stage. Shakespeare is in a different dimension, Hamlet. And unless Shakespeare writes himself into your world, you can never see him. You see, Jesus ascended, not up and up and up, ascended to the place where God is, into a different dimension called heaven. And Luke wants you to capture some imagery about it. So, for example, you can't miss, look in your Bible at verse 9. You'll see just this detail. As he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Would you pay attention to that for a second? A cloud took him out of their sight. You can bet that someone who was reading Dr. Luke's account for the first time, who had read other parts of the Bible before, you can imagine bells went off in their head. In fact, you can imagine someone who was familiar with the Bible would have read Luke's account and said, wait, wait, wait. Someone ascends up to where God is and is now covered in a cloud and out of everyone's sight. And that person would have said, we've seen that before. In fact, there's few places we've seen that. One would be Moses. Would you consider Moses? This past summer, we had Tim preach to us, and Tim preached to us from Psalm 24. And there's this question in Psalm 24. The question is, who may ascend, ascend up to the hill of the Lord? Who can go into his holy place? That's the question of the psalm. Who can ascend up to where God is and go into his holy place? And the psalm answers that question by saying, he who has a pure heart and clean hands, who has not lifted up his heart to idols. Essentially, the psalm answers the question of saying, who can go up to God by saying, whoever has done nothing wrong, ever, or thought anything wrong, he can go up to God. The psalm's problem then is, that rules out everybody. Nobody can go up to God. And nobody knew that better than the people of Israel. You see, they had lived that before. Back in Exodus chapter 19, there's this scene where God has set the people of Israel out of Egypt, freed them, and now he's going to meet with them on a mountain called Sinai. He's going to come to them. Because he's a loving God, he invites them to come, but at the same time, the God who appears on the mountain is a holy God. So they can come, but they can't come too close. It's sort of like fire. Fire draws you in by its heat, by its brilliance, by its beauty. You can come, but you can't come too close. 
because you're flammable. So likewise, God is loving so you can come, but he's holy so you can't come all that close. So God appears in his holiness on Mount Sinai. When he does, guess what you see? A thick cloud. A thick cloud descends on the mountain, so much so that God's presence is there. And now literally the mountain trembles and the people tremble. The mountain shakes and their knees shake. So much so that they say to Moses, we are not going anywhere near that mountain. You go up for us. And they essentially say to Moses, you go and speak to God. Don't let him speak to us because if he speaks to us, we're going to die. Let him talk to you. And so now Moses ascends up to where God is. And he's covered in a cloud and he vanishes from their sight. Now what's Moses? Moses is their representative up where God is. And as long as Moses is there, it's as if the whole nation is there. Because he stands there for them. He's their representative. And Moses on the mountain means they're on the mountain. They could essentially say, our man is up there with God. Our man has ascended to where God is. And Moses there stands as a representative for the people. As you keep reading, Moses comes down. And when he comes down, he's commanded to build something. It's called a tabernacle. And the scriptures say he's told Build according to the pattern of what you saw up there on the mountain. So whatever you saw in the place where God is, you are to come down and you're to build sort of a a model of that, a replica of that. So he builds the tabernacle, and essentially what the tabernacle then is, is a model of the place where God is, a model of heaven, a replica of heaven. And as you keep reading, here's how it unfolds. You can't just go into the model heaven, into the replica. And so God installs something called a priest. A priest could be sort of your insulation. He'd cover you so that you could go into the fire. And so you could go in through a priest. And so what would this priest do? Even his clothes. You know, on a priest's clothes, there were these two stones on his shoulders and then 12 stones put onto his chest. And these stones had literally the names of Israel engraved on it so that he could go into this place where God was and he'd represent the people so much so he'd literally be bearing them on his shoulders, having them engraved on his heart, and he'd go to God. But he couldn't just go in, he'd go with a sacrifice. And there with a sacrifice, he'd intercede for the people. He'd say to God, God, here, don't take their life, though they have sinned. Here is a sacrifice. Life has already been given for them. Here, on account of this, show mercy to them. Now you put all of that together, the thick cloud over the tabernacle, this one man going in. You you put all that together. Here it is. One man ascends to where God is as a representative for the people. A cloud covers him so that you can't see it anymore. One man enters God's place, brings with him a sacrifice, bears the people on his shoulders and on his heart, and intercedes on their behalf. And then you come back to Acts 1, and you see Jesus ascending into heaven, into the clouds. And you know what the New Testament would say? The New Testament would say to you, you know how a model airplane is great, but a 747 is better? Or you know, you can imagine a kid lost in a grocery store, doesn't know where mom is, and suddenly sees coming around the corner a shadow of someone that looks like mom. You know how amazing that shadow is? 
because you were lost for a second, and now you see the shadow. But you know what's even better than the shadow? When mom actually turns the corner and you see mom. The shadow is great, but the mom, the person is better. You know what the New Testament says? All of this stuff were shadows. And the shadows were great, but Jesus is better. In fact, that's the entire message of the letter to the Hebrews. The Hebrews letter will say, Moses ascended up a mountain. That was great. But Jesus ascended into heaven. Moses got to the replica, to the toy model the priest did. But Jesus did his ministry ascending into heaven itself in the presence of God. And Hebrews will keep making this contrast. Hebrews will say, you know, the priests, they were good. But you know, there was a flaw in the whole system. The flaw was your insulation needed insulation. Because the priest had sinned themselves. The priest brought a sacrifice. Before they brought the sacrifice, they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves. How good could your lawyer be if it's your partner in crime that's your lawyer? How good will that case be if the one defending you, making your case, is your partner in crime? See, there was a flaw to the whole thing. The priest had sinned. But Hebrews says, Jesus is a priest who had no sin. He was tempted in every way just as we are, and so he can sympathize with us. In fact, he is God and man in heaven. We don't have time for that now, but would you consider that? There is flesh sitting in heaven. That flesh has ascended to where God is, a picture of what we will be. There's a human being who has gone up to heaven. Or, or you consider, Hebrews is saying, but we have a priest who has no sin. Or Hebrews will say, you know the other thing? You needed lots of priests in the shadow, in the replica. You know why? One priest could do ministry for his whole life, but then he died because he's a sinner and the wages of sin is death. And so you needed another priest. And then he died, and so you needed another priest. But then Hebrews will come and say, now we have a priest who will never die again. One priest whose ministry is eternal, and so therefore he can save to the end those whom he intercedes for eternally. Or Hebrews will say, and you know there was lots of sacrifices because there was endless need for bulls and goats. But how can the blood of bulls and goats take away the sin of murder or adultery or all the sins of the world? But now Hebrews says there is one sacrifice once and for all, Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews will say, you know the priests, they also had to stand always. You know why? Because their work was never done. There's another sin to atone for, more sacrifice to make. So they stood, but Hebrews will say, he ascended and sat down at the right hand of God because he's the one who said, it is finished. Or Hebrews will say, intercession. Jesus up there interceding for us. You know what that means? I read something this week that helped me understand it. It's not so much that Jesus up there going, Father, Ajay messed up again this week. He did what he said he wouldn't do anymore. He didn't do what he promised he would start doing anymore. Could you cut him a break again? Father, it's Tuesday. Ajay did what he said he wouldn't do, and he stopped doing what he said he would do, and could you cut him a break? And Father, it's, it's Tuesday afternoon, and Ajay, right, always interceding for us. But that's not it. Instead, it's, Father, Ajay did what he said he wouldn't do. And Ajay stopped doing what he promised he would do. But Father, here is my body, and here is my blood. 
And the penalty for that has been paid. And so you can give him justice, not even just mercy. You know, isn't that the unbelievable thought? That a Christian has the audacity to say, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful, and the verse doesn't even say, and merciful to forgive us our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Just. Meaning a Christian has the audacity to say, in Christ, you can give me justice. Because there's no double jeopardy. You can't pay for a sin that has already been paid for. We get mercy from God, but in Christ, we're not even scared of the justice of God anymore. Such is the bold audacity, so that as long as he is up there, I am totally safe and secure. As long as he is ministering in heaven, my salvation and my standing before God is totally secure. So much so that even the justice of God for those who are in Christ does not frighten us. In fact, we can say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that the Christian can sing with his whole heart, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. What's that? I see the ascension who made an end to all my sin. That as long as Jesus is there interceding forever, a priest who won't die and won't quit and has already sat down, as long as he's up there, I am never insecure before God ever again. You see, it gives you confidence. How this morning do you deal with guilt, whether you're a Christian or you're not? How do you deal with guilt? Because you know you feel it. So maybe you try to ignore it. Maybe you try to excuse it away. Maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe you commit yourself to working it off. If you do enough good, maybe the guilt of the bad will go away. Maybe you end up living with it. Maybe you hate yourself for it. People kill themselves for guilt. And yet the, the Bible says, look to the ascension. Look to Jesus standing in heaven. Not in the toy model, not in the replica. The high priest offering a once and for all sacrifice, interceding and pleading for you. In fact, this is why Hebrews says this, Hebrews 4 verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Did you catch that? That's ascension. Since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The ascension means that we can have confidence before God in heaven. Second, let me say one more and then we'll be done. The ascension also means that we can have confidence to go to the nations on earth. The ascension means we can confidently go up to God who is in heaven, but the ascension also means that we can confidently go out to the nations as Jesus witnesses on earth. Here's why. Acts gives us a view of the ascension from the vantage point of the disciples. Could you picture yourself? If you're reading Acts, you can see them staring up into the sky, mouths open, and just staring. And so you get to see everything from the vantage point. The camera is on the disciples. So that when Acts continues, they leave from that mountain and they go and wait in Jerusalem for what Jesus promised them. 
But what if you could get a camera on the other side? What if you could get a camera not just from earth looking up? What if you could get a camera on the other side to when Jesus entered into heaven? What if you could get a view from there? What would you see? We actually get a glimpse of that. It's from a prophecy by a man named Daniel. And Daniel says this in Daniel 7. Listen to what he says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. A title, by the way, that Jesus used for himself all the time. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you catch Daniel's glimpse of this whole thing? Daniel saying, here's the vision. There is one like the Son of Man, the title Jesus used for himself, and he's coming in what? In clouds. Before who? The ancient of days before God. And so now is one, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds to God. And what happens? He is given all authority. He's given this everlasting kingdom so that now all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him. And that's when you see, when you look from the ground up, you see him floating into the sky. But when you see from the other lens, from Daniel's point of view, you begin to see the ascension is actually a coronation. That Jesus is being exalted up to the right hand of God, seated in majesty, and now to him is given all authority and dominion, and a kingdom that will last forever, a rule and a reign over which are all the peoples and all the languages and all the nations and all the tribes. Jesus is being coronated. That's why in Acts 1 verse 6, when the disciples said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Jerusalem? Essentially what they're asking is, Jesus, are you now going to be enthroned in Jerusalem? Are you going to take your seat in the throne in Jerusalem and be king? But here's what Jesus responds. Jesus' response is, you don't have to worry about the time of when God will do what he will do. You are to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's almost as if to say, if Jesus was enthroned in Jerusalem, that would make him the king of Israel. But the ascension is Jesus is enthroned in heaven, making him the king of the whole world. Which is why when he's about to leave in Matthew's account at the end, in Matthew 28, before he leaves, he says, quoting Daniel 7, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, this is why we have mission. We have mission because Jesus has been enthroned as king over the world. And now we get to be ambassadors of that message. This is why in Acts 1, the angels come, two angels, while they're staring up, and they essentially have to nod them and say, hey, excuse me, men of Galilee, why are you staring into the heavens? This Jesus who you so go up will come back exactly as he has gone. But that's the angel's way of saying, until he does come back, you can't just stare at heaven. 
because there is work to do. Remember, he said, you'll be my witnesses. It's, this is what mission is. Mission is going to the nations and declaring all that Jesus did in his first coming and calling people to come under the rule and reign of the king before his second coming, when he will do what kings do and judge the world. This moment is mercy, or is mission, which is we get to declare to the world of what the king did in his first coming, and call them to submit and come under the rule and reign of Jesus before he comes again. Ascension means that we can have confidence to go to the nations as Jesus' witnesses. Let me say one thing, and then I'll stop. As we go on mission, what the ascension also means is that Jesus is closer to you now than even he was to the apostles before he ascended. That can sound like just good religious talk to make you feel better, and it's true. Jesus is closer to you now who have never seen him than he was to the disciples before he ascended. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, it's actually good for you that I leave. And you want to go, how could that be good? Why would it be good that you're not with us on the earth anymore? This one preacher named Tim Keller, he made this great observation. He said, you know, and when the resurrection happens, there's a woman named Mary that comes and sees Jesus. She had gone to the tomb. She couldn't find Jesus. She's beside herself, distraught. Suddenly, Jesus appears and says, Mary, and she says, Rabboni, teacher, and then she goes to cling to him with all her might. And he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, when you read that, you almost go, you can't touch me, Mary, because it's almost like this body's sacred, and you can't touch me until I go up. But he later goes to Thomas and says, touch, feel. So, th so it's not that Mary can't touch him. And Keller says you can almost see it as the, the, the phrase could be, don't cling to me so tightly, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And Keller's point is this. It's almost like you can picture yourself in Mary, that if you saw Jesus then, you would hold on with all your might, going, I lost you once. I am never, ever going to lose you again. I'm never going to lose you again, Jesus. To which Jesus responds, Mary, if you don't want to lose me, let me ascend. Now, how does that make sense? If you never want to lose me, if you want to make sure that you'll never lose me again, you, Mary, have to let me go and let me ascend because in ascending, that's the way you will never lose me. Why? Because if he's here in a body, he can be in one place at one time and give access to some of us, but not all of us. But in ascending and sending his Holy Spirit, he is closer to you and all of us than he could possibly be if he were still on the earth. In fact, it's almost like by letting go of his hand, you've invited him to come into your heart. This is what St. Augustine said. He had this great quote. He said, you ascended from before our eyes, and we turn back grieving only to find you in our hearts. This is how close Christ has come through his Holy Spirit. Through his Holy Spirit, Jesus is closer to his witnesses than he has ever been before through his Holy Spirit. And to see that, we'll have to get to Acts chapter 2. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that everyone here who knows you and doesn't 
might have Jesus with them. We pray that you would give us great confidence of our standing before you in heaven. We pray that we would, as we see so many different angles of the good news, we would today see it is good news for us that Jesus is in heaven and all that that means for our standing with you. And that because you are the king over all in heaven, we would go as your witnesses boldly to the ends of the earth. Come help us to live this out. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to communion where Jesus has left 